0: Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. This week's episode of Walk Talk is all about protecting yourself and your future as
1: a healthcare professional. The discussion features Linda Stricker, certified root ostomy continence nurse and program director of the Cleveland Clinic's RB Turnbull Jr. MD Walk Nursing Education Program, and two partners from the medical malpractice defense group at White and Williams LLP, Deborah Weinrich and Edward Bites. Listen in to learn more about being a witness, electronic medical record documentation, legal issues, and how to protect yourself against medical malpractice. Hi everyone, thanks for listening. This is Linda Stricker. I'm a certified wound ostomy continence nurse and the program director for the Cleveland Clinic R.B. Turnbull Jr. M.D. WOC Nursing Education Program. Today I'm joined by two partners in the Medical Malpractice Defense Group at White and Williams LLP. Deborah Weinrich and Edward Bites. Welcome. Hi. Hello. We're here to discuss a session that you both presented at the WOCN Society's 50th Annual Conference, Protecting Your Present and Future, Legal Issues, Being a Witness, and Electronic Medical Record Documentation. Before we get started, Deborah, I understand that while you are currently practicing law, this
2: was not your first career. That's correct. My first career was in nursing. Mm -hmm. I went to nursing school. I practiced in med surge for about a year, and then I moved into maternal newborn services, mostly labor and delivery, which was fun and amazing. But I now defend nurses and other healthcare practitioners when they're sued in the negligence medical malpractice context.
1: So how does your background in nursing help you in this process, and what led you to move into the legal area?
2: I think it definitely gives me an edge. I have a good understanding of anatomy and physiology, but I also have a really good understanding of how things work on a unit, whether it be long-term care, which I also did while I was at nursing school, but in a hospital setting. So I have some insight. I also did some administrative work before I switched out. So I have all of that background experience, which is helpful, but the biggest thing that it does for me is it helps me connect with the people who are being sued, the providers. I think that they feel they can trust me. I don't have to work so hard to build trust, as some of my colleagues do, because they know I'm on their side, because I'm one of them. And as far as how did I switch, in all honesty, I couldn't decide advanced practice nursing, law, should I go to med school, should I become a midwife? And law just worked. And people who know me have said I knew how to argue from early on. So... I'm putting that skill to use. Oh, that's wonderful, because many times in
1: the nursing career, you try to decide what is going to be the next step for yourself.
2: Yeah, there's lots of options. And for me, law was a good fit. So, Ed, how did you become involved, or what
1: was it that interested you to move into the medical malpractice arena?
3: So, a year out of college, I went to law school, not really knowing what I wanted to do, except that I was interested in government and how our court systems worked. I had spent a couple of summers working for ABC News with ideas that I would be a um, journalist or a news television writer. But all that really did was I spent a summer in New York at ABC, seeing lots of behind the scenes stuff of how things worked with the current administration at the time with when George W. Bush was in office, things that were leading up to 9-11. And I realized that I was much more interested in how government worked and how civil process worked. I didn't know exactly how I was going to fit into that or how I was going to ultimately end up using my law degree. But when I was graduating and applying for jobs, I was attracted to the medical field largely because I have good number of relatives who are in the field, most specifically my mother, who is a a WOCN nurse herself, and my mom's sister, who is a CRNA. So I grew up with a lot of this talk at the dinner table. When it came to the wound stuff, sometimes we wish it wasn't always going on at the dinner table. But that's where I realized that I could maybe be useful in terms of having an affinity for these people and defending them during a time in their life when it, they're under all a tremendous amount of stress, which is what happens in these cases.
1: Right. And like Deborah, you've got that natural connection then to nursing in particular.
3: Yeah, not all of Deb's education, but I have an affinity and appreciation for for healthcare providers in general.
1: So the session that you presented was fantastic and I know it was very well attended. How did you decide on the topics that you wanted to cover for this particular session?
2: I think that the general topic was provided to us as something that the group was looking for. And then Ed and I spoke about what the more specific content would be and and where to put the focus. So Ed and I have both done presentations over time, integrating a lot of what we did today. So the background on negligence, because that's important and people need to understand what negligence is and, and what litigation in this context is in order to understand why they should not be documenting one way versus another. And then we both wanted to use some examples as to how your documentation can be used against you. Yeah. or to help you in that sense
3: too. It's a presentation that has pieces of other speeches that we've given. And one thing that I do, we ended up using as part of this is um, I have a connection with the radiology group at University of Pennsylvania. So every year I'll go speak to the new resident class of radiologists, just like what are the, what's the outline of a medical malpractice case. But it continues to amaze me how Many times I meet with someone who's a nurse or a doctor who's being sued and they don't know any of these concepts. They don't even know what the word deposition means. For those of you who don't know what it what it is, it's when a plaintiff takes your statement under oath in a conference room where they ask you you questions. And then if the case ever goes to court, they can use the answers that you gave under oath to either cross-examine you or to ask you further questions. But it's just incredible to me how many people don't know about it. Thankfully, being sued is not the biggest part of a provider's career, but when it does happen, it can be extraordinarily time consuming and emotionally exhausting. And I just think it's important for anyone who's practicing either medicine or nursing to have some working knowledge of what the legal system that surrounds their job is like.
1: Absolutely. So when we talk about documentation, this is one area in particular concern for nursing. What can we tell the WOC nurses who would be listening to this? What key points on documentation, important takeaways should they have?
2: I can tell you that not only for nursing, but for every single provider who makes any entries in the chart, they need to keep things in mind. The biggest thing is to document objective facts, what is occurring, what the condition is, to take subjectivity and judgmental conversations or comments out of medical record, and instead you utilize a summary process of saying, this is what was happening with my patient, this is objectively what was there, and because there was this, I implemented this. So the reasons for why you implemented or did not implement something is the most important piece of documenting it at any time.
3: I think it's important just to to be circumspect about what you're, you're saying and realizing that this is gonna be the biggest basis to be questioned about later. So for example, if you are extraordinarily busy during a given shift, when it comes time for your progress, you only have time to say oh, this is what's been happening over the past three hours. Make sure that's clear, because when the note is in an electronic record specifically, when it's time stamped a given time, oftentimes in deposition, the plaintiff will say, so all of this happened um, you know, right at this moment. And the nurse will have to sit there and go, well, no, that doesn't really make any sense not all of these things could have happened at exactly 11 o'clock so the more detail that you can put in in keeping with deb's theme about just the facts if you have a note that actually spans about three hours worth of time try to break it out and i know most nurses have their shift report where they're taking down their scratch notes before they move it into the chart make it as detailed as possible and put into context that this is something that's happened over an extended period of time this is not just you know one event
1: Oh, that's wonderful advice. So, one of the common issues that I've seen with some nurses is the use of abbreviations. Can you tell us more about concerns that people should have about the use of abbreviations in their documentation?
3: On the nursing side, I tend to not see it as big of an issue. The docs seem to be the ones that are more rushed in their documentation and tend to rely on on abbreviations more, at least in my experience, nursing notes tend to be more spelled out. and Usually hospital guidelines have this nailed down, stick to what the accepted abbreviations are. Because I guess the time when I most see abbreviations are when it's for a person's name. Like, for example, if instead of it being Dr. Jones, if they're using initials of the person's first and last name and only people who are working on the floor would know what that means. Because the problem with that is somebody might have left. It could have been years later. You might have a hard time. The folks who are trying to defend the case might have a hard time tracking down the nurse that wrote it. And you don't want to be in a position of just because you've moved on to another place, leaving people behind that can't interpret your handwriting. So just stick to the accepted abbreviations.
2: Yeah, I would agree with Ed that it's exceptionally important to stick to designated approved abbreviations because when you create your own abbreviations they actually may mean something else in reality and it's difficult to try to interpret a made-up abbreviation you may think this seems so clear that this is what this meant it's not ambiguous at all but in reality not everybody's brain works the same way and you cannot assume that somebody's going to interpret it correctly so You want to always use approved abbreviations.
1: Another question I frequently hear from people is what about not charted, not done? If I forget to document something and now it's a year later and now I'm being questioned on something, I know I did it, but it's not in the chart. What are those implications?
3: So... I understand why you don't document, you don't do is an important mantra. I didn't go to nursing school myself, but just in speaking with Deb and speaking with my mother and speaking with all the nurses that I've represented over the past decade, that is what's drilled down because they want to hammer home the point that you want your documentation to be as complete as possible. The issue is that at the end of the day, it is impossible to document everything that happens on a floor. So when it comes time for a deposition and when a plaintiff's attorney says, if you don't document, you don't do. So if it's not here, it didn't happen. It's fundamentally important that a nurse not just blanketly agree with that proposition. In reality, and what we do when we prepare folks for depositions is, you know, think about why are you documenting what you documented? Most of the time it's because you documented the most important or pertinent things that happened and that there's no time to document every single negative. It's the most basic example I can come up with is if somebody comes in to an emergency department, says, I have a headache. And the plaintiff's attorney asks, well, you didn't document anything that was going on with the person's leg. Of course, but that's because the person was complaining of a headache. And I'm sure I give every patient I have a head-to-toe assessment. And I could tell that they didn't also have a broken leg on that particular day. So helping the nurse to sit and put themselves in the shoes they were in back two years ago by saying, well, what do you do every time? What do you do every day? What are you looking for? What are you documenting? And then more often than not, the nurse is able to explain, every time I see a patient, I do X, Y, and Z. The only reason Z is documented here is because that was what was abnormal or that, not even abnormal, that was what was pertinent to what was happening. I didn't document X and Y because they simply weren't relevant.
2: Exactly. There are lots of things that are implicit in notes that we simply would never document, but we know they're done every time. And from a deposition standpoint, it's something called invariable practice. For clinicians, I often use an example of, for instance, it's not a wound example, but I, I could do it for a wound example, but this one is, is easy and very clear. But from an obstetrical perspective, if someone goes to do a vaginal exam, they never write, I walked into the room. I got a glove out, I opened the glove pack, and I performed my vaginal exam. They simply say I did the vaginal exam and the results were this. But it's implicit that they put a glove on. It's implicit because nobody's ever done one without. So there are lots and lots and lots of things that happen in everyday nursing that are like that. So there's ways to defend something even though it's not written in the chart. There's also the concept of charting by exception. A lot of institutions teach or utilize charting by exception, and that's another way of more explicitly stating a reason for what Ed described. We don't talk about what's normal. We only talk about what's not normal.
3: Yeah, I, I had a case once where the patient was in a very bad car accident and had wounds of all different types all over his leg and there was what i considered to be great documentation for checking the leg looking under the dressings assessing the patient as he progressed and he ultimately ended up developing a compartment syndrome and the plaintiff's attorneys i think faced with what was ultimately very good Documentation just did everything they could to, to point out things that weren't there in terms of like, well, how did you feel to see if there was any swelling in the compartment? How did you look to see if there was edema? I think a lot of providers, without being properly prepared for a deposition, would might freeze up at that question. But when you talk them through it, kind of the example Deb just gave, you didn't document it that you washed your hands before that either, right? But it's just it's implicit in when I'm documenting this. This is a description of how I do my examination,
2: and I do those examinations the same way every time. Or maybe it's an application of a wound vac. You know how you go through the procedure. You know what your specific procedure is, whether it's opening the pack, how you prep the area, what do you do, assess the area first. Whatever your routine is, you didn't document the entire routine, but you know how you did it because you do it that way every single time. So again, there are lots of ways to get around that, but the important thing is to remember that you want to document the important observations which led to the reason of why you're putting that wound back on, and that it got applied.
1: That's actually very helpful to many people who are documenting and trying to make sure that the information is there in, a, in that historical aspect. So that would lead naturally into, I document everything I can about a patient, uh, but how, or are there ways that documentation then could be on the flip side used against me?
2: Yes. Lots of things can be used against you when you're documenting. I think we've hinted on some of it. I don't want to repeat too much, but infighting, disagreements, subjective commentary, arguing in the chart is just the biggest no-no ever. Again, subjective information, painting a judgmental picture of a patient or patient's family, anything where you are not being objective and simply stating facts can be problematic you want to make sure words are attributed to you it's your opinion or it's a statement made you know it's that if you're doing soap notes you know subjective is fine that's a patient subjective is fine but objective has to be there and you have to explain what you know your assessment was and what your plan is so you want the information again objectively what it was that you did and why you're doing it not filled with arguments, communication back and forth. We don't need a series of notes between different providers of, I recommended this, I don't want to do this, she's crazy, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You don't want to get into that. You also don't want to negatively portray even those patients who we've all had who are difficult and they're hard to deal with and their family's angry or frustrated or aggressive and they're hard, but you have to be objective. Say what their statements were and how you responded.
3: The electronic medical record has, and just like any, you know, this is not specific to medicine per se, but anyone who has a professional career position where they're responsible for creating a lot of written product. We all live in a world where people use templates. We also all live in a world of cut and paste, where if we're generating a report for one person that has a lot of the same information that's in a report we've generated for another person, we'll cut and paste over, and then we'll make the necessary adjustments that we need to for this specific report. The issue with electronic medical records is that it's a double-edged sword, right? Like they're they're designed to be quicker and easier for documentation, but quick and easy, as the, in any other aspect of life, uh, can sometimes translate into careless. And I've had cases where a physician was, for example, assessing someone's abdominal pain. They just thought they had constipation due to using opioids, and um, but there are carryovers from prior days that make it look like, well, this person's pain level stayed exactly the same. When in fact, the physician was able to tell by what he did, what he ordered, what his responses were that in fact, no, 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 this was kind of progressing exactly how we thought it was going to. But if you just looked at the black and white page, it'd be very hard to believe that And if you expected this to be a note of what you did on that day. Automatic fill-ins are, are, are an issue. For example, we'll have um, cases where a surgeon will click the wrong drop down menu and it will say i was av- i was at bedside for the entire procedure when in fact the surgeon wasn't because it was a third year resident and he just needed to be given the type of the procedure i only needed to be available called in when needed and it ends up being a big problem because it looks like it looks like the person quote lied when in fact they just clicked the wrong button and that might be really easy as we sit here on a podcast to explain the difference. But when you're on a witness stand in front of a jury who doesn't want to hear, oh, the surgery was being done, there's always a, um, there's a natural, uh, what's the word? Bi- bias. Uh, bias. Again, what they want they want the doctor to be involved at all times. And if they see in the note that it says that I was and the doctor ends up saying, well, actually, I wasn't, it's, that very, what might be an otherwise reasonable, legal, and perfectly acceptable explanation will, will look like hedging or just flat out misrepresentation.
1: Well, that's very good advice in terms of being careful about keeping out negative issues and remaining objective. And that's a very important takeaway. Now, for those who have not ever been involved in a legal case before, and then all of a sudden you get this message that this chart is gonna be reviewed and the nurse's heart just sinks can you explain the process of how this medical malpractice litigation goes the process of discovery and and how do they know somebody is actually responsible or liable
2: for an injury well allegedly responsible thank you thank you <laughs> i mean a case can come in numerous different ways there are in all honesty a, a plaintiff doesn't have to actually file suit to raise concerns or issues. They may go through risk management. They may have contacted patient advocate in an institution, and then it goes through to risk management. And risk management may do an internal review. And Or after a patient has been discharged and a year or so passes, a plaintiff's lawyer may directly send an intention or a, it's a letter saying, we believe there was negligence here, so forth and so on. And it may be done before a suit from that perspective. So you may be questioned by risk management in that context. But as far as a formal suit, each state is a little different, but generally you will be served or the hospital will be served with what's known as a complaint. And the complaint can name a nurse independently as a defendant, meaning they're officially naming you as a person who did something wrong and you're on the hook for it as opposed to other cases where nurses are lumped in with the hospital. And they'll say, these nurses didn't do X and Y over the course of time. This nurse X, Y, Z, and so forth and so on. But the hospital is responsible for them because they're the hospital's agent. And so the complaint can say one of the two things. So they'll either personally be served or they'll be told through the hospital or their institution that they were served. This is like a long answer. But so then the complaint lays out what the allegations are. Whatever plaintiff wants to put in there, they will say, we think you did X and Y wrong. This patient was here. They lay out some medical facts and they put in some allegations. So allegations can run the gamut. Failure to assess, failure to implement treatment, failure to diagnose, failure to timely diagnose, failure to do a very specific assessments, failures to do very specific number of things. And ultimately, you'll be assigned counsel. And rather than me speak for 10 minutes, I'm going to pass the next stage to Ed.
3: So when a counsel is assigned, and this is where you can get a little bit nuanced, but if you, assuming the nurse is employed by a hospital, typically the, the nurse will be interviewed by the attorney, that either someone in-house who works for the hospital directly or an outside law firm like where Deb and I work that's hired to come in and meet with everybody. Um, If the nurse is employed by the hospital, typically they'll be represented by the attorney that represents the hospital. They'll have a conversation about what they remember. If the nurse really feels like they wouldn't be able to explain themselves or defend the care without essentially saying that I gave this information to the physician and the physician didn't follow it, at that point, there might be separate counsel assigned because there's a an inherent conflict between those two individuals and that can't be represented by everyone. But then the council will meet with the nurse, uh, assuming that there is no conflict, and whatever other healthcare providers are involved in the case, figure out what happened. I hire an expert to review the case, and the an expert is someone who comes in from the outside, a person not involved in the care, but who has the appropriate qualifications review the documentation, review the plaintiff's allegations, and give us an opinion. Honestly, of like, do we think a a ball was dropped here and that that resulted in the injury? Or do we think, no, this is a bad outcome that happened not because of, but despite all the best of care. And we will proceed to litigation if the case is defensible. If the case we think is ultimately not defensible, we'll do the best that we can to put the plaintiff's damages in a real perspective, not just what they they might hire an economist or a life care planner to say, oh, this person needs millions of dollars worth of treatment. And then we'll hire opposing experts to say like, well, that's inflated as an exaggeration. We'll try to get the case resolved.
2: And as part of that process, settlement can, can be considered all the way along. But oftentimes settlement doesn't occur until after depositions and formal discovery take place. So formal written discovery are where the party's required, but it's done through their counsel to answer written questions and produce documentation of assorted kind, whether it's policies and procedures, obviously medical records themselves, can be training materials, it can be educational credentials. It can be anything known to man, pretty much, but there are some things that are safe from discovery. Each state is different, but they can ask for lots of things. And then depositions occur. Usually there are numerous depositions. It really just depends on the length of time, the number of people involved. But if you're named defendant, it's a pretty good shot. You're going to get deposed. You're really not going to escape that. You you have a slight chance of not being deposed if you're more of a tangential player in the grand scheme of the story being told. And As part of that, if you have good counsel, which I hope everyone does, you'll spend time with your lawyer preparing, going through in much more detail than what we go through today. The do's and don'ts during depositions. A good lawyer will tell you, you tell the truth. You do not lie. We go through a whole litany of rules and regulations, we would call them, for deposition preparation. The do's and don'ts and the best way to approach things. And we go over anticipated areas of testimony. Now, we can't always ask every question. It's impossible. And there's usually few things that come from left field, but you go through a preparation process. Then you're deposed. Ultimately, if the case doesn't settle, you go to trial.
1: So along with that line, how do the standards of care fit into this? So in, in our society, our members are provided some standards of care to help with their policy development. How does that fit into this?
3: So you're probably talking about example for like societal guidelines. Correct. That might come yes, down? absolutely. Okay. So this is, this is one of the things that will sometimes drive a provider absolutely up the wall when they hear this. But oftentimes, and it depends on jurisdiction, meaning state or whether or not you're in federal court. But I would say that probably more often than not, the guidelines might not come into evidence at all. And because they are hearsay, which just for a quick legal education, hearsay is an out of court statement being offered for the truth of the matter asserted. And so that's a lot of words, but basically it's a written statement that was created sometime not in the courtroom for this trial. And if you're trying to bring it in to say this is what the standard of care is, meaning that the standard of care is what the WOCN has proffered as a guideline, you're putting it in as evidence of this is what the standard of care is. And that's not something that you can ordinarily do. And there is case law that even says that literature can't come in for that purpose. There are exceptions, and there's a lot of exceptions. One of the things that we try to argue, and we've had varying degrees of success on this is that you can't ask a provider why they did what they did and ignore the fact that there are promulgated guidelines in their in their society because part of being careful or as as opposed to being careless and being negligent is keeping up with what the best practices are in the particular field. So we try to bring it in as it's not evidence for the quote truth of the matter asserted. It's evidence of the person's state of mind, their state of mind being, I was a careful provider who checked what my guidelines of my society are saying, these are the best practices today. And how can I explain what I did or what I didn't do without talking about, again, the why? of what I did or what I didn't do without talking about the the guidelines and the prevailing thoughts in my society the the other way that we you can get them in is by cross examining the plaintiff's expert And that's where, in a courtroom, the standard of care is largely defined by the competing expert's testimony. So when the plaintiff's expert gets up and says they should have done this, this, and this, and we say, well, you know, you're a member of the same society as the defense expert, correct? And as the defendant, correct? Well, that your society has guidelines, doesn't it? It does. And, in fact, you've subscribed to those guidelines, correct? And don't those guidelines say this? And uh, as long as you get—the trick is in Pennsylvania, you have to get the— expert to agree that the guidelines are authoritative, but if they're a member of that, so you have to find creative ways of doing that. Maybe there's, they, they've published for the same publication, you get their CV, and if they do that, it's hard for them to deny that there's a it's a good authoritative source of information. So that was a lot. It was a mouthful. Deb. I don't know if you have anything to add to that.
2: No, I, I, I think that what everything Ed said is true, but ultimately the summary is what Ed said. The experts in the courtroom are the ones who state what the standard of care is and if there are applicable guidelines or standards by quote-unquote an authoritative or a very well-known body such as you know wocn or awon or acog or other papers literature peer-reviewed documentation that demonstrates that there's evidence-based information that sets forth why people should be using this method, then ultimately our expert works to get that in somehow.
1: So in our world of um, regulatory issues that affect healthcare, we now are faced with hospital-acquired conditions and preventing them, or what is sometimes called the never events. One of those happens to be hospital-acquired pressure injury that are full thickness, the stage three and four. Are you finding, number one, that you're seeing an increase in litigation with regards to these types of injuries, specifically pressure injury, and number
2: two, do you have a standout case? I'd have to think, but I don't have a, a case that's, that comes to mind immediately. I can say that pressure injuries and pressure ulcers have long been the, I would say, main Topic or main issue raised by plaintiffs in lawsuits. Now, they're not necessarily the biggest lawsuits. They're often in a long term care setting, but they certainly happen in the hospital and in acute care settings. And a lot of it is generated by family perception that this wound is getting worse. They didn't have a wound or the wound is getting worse and they're in the hospital. So clearly, the people in the hospital aren't doing what they should be doing because my loved one is getting worse. So they almost always run to the plaintiff's lawyer. And you know, because of who you are, that there are a myriad of things that affect whether a wound progression can be prevented and that there are clinical things, whether it's dietary, vasculature issues, that simply the patient is declining, their circulation is declining, their nutrition is declining, and their body just can't fight off those pressure injuries. So I haven't personally seen a spike I think that it's it's always been there, but I can tell you that without a doubt, plaintiff's lawyers would use the words never events and documentation to try to argue their case.
3: Yeah, I I can't quote a statistic. I can just tell you by by my perception. And it does appear that litigation involving long term care in general is on the increase and i think that's a result of we have the the baby boomers are getting older and so you're seeing a rise in that in the number of businesses and facilities that provide long term care and i think as long as as long as the general number increases i don't think it means that care in per se is getting any worse but i think it's by virtue of a numbers game you're going to see an increase in litigation involving pressure injuries i definitely can't give a um, c- complete answer on because it's the concept of hospital-acquired conditions with respect to Medicare reimbursement is still relatively new. And so the cases are only really now going to trial where that might be an issue. But one of the things that occurs to me is that a lot of times in court, you're not supposed to talk about insurance at all because a jury's not supposed to know that hey, it doesn't really matter what happens here because there's this source of money that's going to pay for this person. That's not supposed to be a relevant consideration. And so whether the terminology, because Medicare, even though it's not a strict insurer, it's a, it's a payor for services, whether or not the concept of, of never events as it pertains, as, as I understand it, it's been promulgated by CMS. I don't know that that's going to be allowed into court. But I can never predict exactly what the judiciary is going to decide on any given case.
2: Right. And there's also reporting sentinel events and and the reporting of such things. So there are different ways for plaintiffs, lawyers to be able to try to, to get that information in. But we just fight on.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And and all the advice you've provided so far with regards to standards of care and how we document that is going to be very helpful for anyone listening to this presentation. So as we wrap things up, do you have any particular takeaways that we could share with our members just in general setting up your practice and protecting yourself and your patients?
3: I guess my biggest advice would be, and maybe it sounds self-serving, but I don't I don't mean it to be. I can completely understand how if you're a provider and you get sued, that you can view the attorney that's assigned to represent you as just part of this unfortunate state of affairs that our legal system decides these things by way of this very adversarial process. And if I, even though it might temporarily deprive me of a job, if I could flip a switch that would save nurses and doctors from having to go through this, I would would switch it and I would for my mother's sake alone, and I would go find something else to do. But I, I think the, the advice I would give is, even if it might be tempting to view your defense attorney as just part of this very frustrating system, try to recognize that this person is doing everything they do to try to give you a good outcome. It's their it's their ethical duty. It's their it's their business to do that. But they Deb being an exception, as she's both an RN and a, a lawyer. But for someone like me who is not, and most of us who defend. Nurses and doctors are not ourselves providers. You are you, the the sued nurse or doctor, are the expert that I need to rely on and I need to work with. And don't be afraid to, to communicate open and honestly with that person. And if you're scared and you just you know, want to wish this away, you're not going to be able to wish it away by sticking your head in your sand. So work with your attorney. Give them the information that they need. If you are upset, if you are emotionally compromised as a result of this case, tell your attorney that your attorney can usually talk to the hospital and say, "Are there support services for this person?" Because I'm not—I am a counselor in the sense that I'm an attorney, but I'm not a—I'm not a—I'm not an emotional and I'm not a psychological counselor. I try to do the best that I can and I try to empathize, but sometimes when you get sued, you need real professional help, and it's there, and a lot of people are so afraid to ask. So I guess just. Be open and accepting of your attorney and let them notice what's going on with you. That'd be my advice.
2: I certainly agree with all of that advice. I would also say that do not also let the threat of litigation so impact your practice that you are not functioning as the competent, smart, strong, intelligent practitioner that you are. Don't over document and start defensively documenting and changing everything known to man about your practice and what you've learned simply because you're petrified about the fact that you may get sued. I can can tell you that providers get sued all the time and some fields get sued more than others. And you may escape and never go through litigation and that's wonderful. But if you get sued, it doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible provider and i can tell you that i'm sure ed has numerous examples as well i know that we've lost really good nurses in lots of different aspects of nursing based solely on the fact that they went through litigation and they just said nope not going to do it anymore because litigation is exceptionally stressful and we should be, the takeaways shouldn't scare them to death as we go out the door. And, but I want to tell you that what we're saying this is because it, it's not. It's not the end of the world. And you'll get through it. You'll be fine. So don't let it paralyze you and know that there are people working on your side. And your institutions are going to be working on your side. And I can tell you that's another thing just came to mind. They used to say people that I worked with when I was doing clinical work in hospitals and wherever else I was working at the time. And the nurses would say, oh, I have to, you know, if I didn't follow the policy to the exact letter, then the hospital's gonna point the finger at me and say they didn't follow my policy and so they were the bad nurse. I can tell you that's not gonna happen, okay? You are the hospital's agent. The hospital wants to support you. Your institution wants to support you. It benefits them to support you because they are responsible for you 99.9 times out of 100 so it's not the end of the world you'll get through it and the world will continue to spin and you'll continue to practice well
1: this has been extremely helpful and i know anyone who's listening to this presentation is going to find a great number of takeaways that will help in their practice Unfortunately, that's about all the time we have left for our talk today. Deb and Ed, it absolutely is a pleasure to have you, and thank you so much for taking your time to discuss this topic a little further with me today. For our listeners, we hope you enjoyed our discussion and that you feel better prepared to protect yourself and your future as a healthcare professional. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit WOCN.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's WOCN.org podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk.